0: In our culture today we face a danger in focusing too much on our physical bodies but there's also a danger in not thinking about them enough in his new book what god has to say about our bodies sam Alberry explores what the bible teaches about our physical selves and how that teaching should impact our view of gender sexuality aging illness and even death ultimately Alberry reminds us of a wondrous truth that we too often forget, that our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made and are destined for a new creation through Jesus, God in the flesh. Today, we're pleased to share a special one-hour audio preview of Sam's new book, right here on the Crossway Podcast. Let's get started. Crossway presents What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, How the Gospel is Good News for Our Physical Selves, written and read by Sam Albury.
1: Introduction Sometimes we tend to notice our body only when something is wrong with it. A new pain develops, or we become self-conscious about some aspect or other of our appearance and wish it was different. At other times, we can be happily oblivious. I remember when, as a young schoolchild in biology class, I first saw one of the plastic models of the body's internal workings, the skeleton, the organs, the intestines and so on, and being both curious and a little repulsed. It was so complex and intricate and yet a bit gross too. It was weird to think of all that was going on inside me. I didn't want to know much more about it. When some medical issue or other arises, I find out what I need to know to understand what the doctor is telling me, but other than that, I live in generally happy ignorance. While we tend to focus on our body when it's letting us down, it's easy to ignore it when it comes to spiritual matters. Even the word spiritual suggests we're talking about the non-physical. So when it's come up in conversation that I'm writing a Christian book about the body, many have said with a quizzical look something like, do you mean the church and how it is like a body? That seems to make more initial sense than a book about our actual bodies. That's why I've written these pages. The first surprise for some of us might be how much the Bible has to say about our body. The second is how the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for our body. Your body, my body, is not just there, happening to exist. It means something to God. He knows it. He made it. He cares about it. And all that Christ has done in his death and resurrection is not in order for us one day to escape our body, but for him one day to redeem it. Far from being a spiritual irrelevance, Scripture tells us our body is meaningful. So much of the discipleship in the New Testament is spoken of in bodily terms, and it is part of God's eternal plan for us. Part 1. Created Bodies Chapter 1. Fearfully and Wonderfully Made The Body and Its Creator Whenever American friends and I engage in friendly discussion about the relative advantages of life in our respective countries, I'm British, I tend to feel I'm on the losing side. Sure, life in Britain has lots going for it. We have cream teas, country pubs, moderate weather, chocolate that doesn't taste like wax, and castles that aren't made of plastic. But America has a lot going for it too. Optimism, proper lemonade, customer service, better dentistry, and the Grand Canyon. But when it looks like all is lost for dear old Britain, Boxing Day becomes the clincher. In Britain, December the 26th is a public holiday, and it's one of my favourites. After all the hype and gastronomic overexertion of Christmas Day, Boxing Day, so-called because it was when you would box up gifts for the poor, is a day to exhale a little. You can rest a bit, pick up and start to enjoy the gifts received the day before, join the cousins and take the dogs for a walk. In short. You can retain the Christmas vibe, but at a more genteel pace. There's lots to do, but nothing much that urgently needs to be done. As I write, it is Boxing Day. Yesterday was Christmas. At church, we heard the Apostle John's iconic summary of what happened in Bethlehem so many years ago. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the claim behind Christmas. God became man. For many, the scandal is the claim that there is a God at all. But even more electrifying, both when John first wrote those words and for us today, is the claim about what this God did. He became flesh. Theologians call it the Incarnation. At the centre of the Christian faith is the belief that by coming to earth as one of us, Christ could die for our sins, rise to new life, bring us into fellowship with God, and begin the process of putting right all that's gone wrong. But at the centre of that claim tucked away where we don't always see it, is the notion that to become one of us, Jesus had to become flesh. To become a human person, he needed to become a human body. Become a body. Not simply don one for a few years. He could, in theory, have turned up as a ready-made, 30-year-old male, prepared immediately to gather his disciples, teach about God's kingdom and head to the cross. But really becoming one of us took more. To truly become human, Jesus needed to become a fetus in the womb, a baby in a cot, a toddler stumbling about as he learned to walk, a teenager going through puberty, a fully grown man. It wasn't enough to have a body, he needed to truly be one. Jesus' incarnation is the highest compliment the human body has ever been paid. God not only thought our bodies up and enjoyed putting several billion of them together, he made one for himself and not just for the Christmas season. The body of Jesus was not like my Christmas pullover, little more than a festive novelty. No, his body was for life, and for far more than that. After his death he was raised bodily, and after his resurrection he returned to his Father in heaven, also bodily. When he ascended into heaven he didn't ditch his humanity, like a space shuttle ditches its booster rockets, to borrow a phrase from N.T. Wright. Becoming human at Christmas was not meant to be reversible, it was permanent. There is now a human body sitting at the right hand of God the Father at the very centre of heaven. Bodies matter. Jesus couldn't become a real human person without one. And we can't hope to enjoy authentic life without one, either. That his body matters is proof that mine and yours do too. He became what he valued enough to redeem. He couldn't come for people without coming for their flesh and without coming as flesh. C.S. Lewis sums it up neatly. Quote, Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself wants to corner human body, that some kind of body is going to be given to us even in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty and our energy. End quote. This is part of what makes Christianity stand out. It's been common among other religious and non-religious belief systems to demean the body, along with our physicality, to see it as something unspiritual or in need of escaping. In contrast, the Bible sees our body as a good, if imperfect, creation of God. It is a gift. We're not used to thinking of our body as a gift. Perhaps one reason is that when we think of our body, we tend to think of the frustrating limitations it places on us. This is true even when it's working well. At the peak of our strength and fitness, our energies and capacities are still finite. As the prophet Isaiah reminds us, even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. We can't be and do all that we would want. We're constrained. Physical life is, by definition, one of being contingent, when perhaps we would rather be free. I'm sure this is one of the reasons behind our fascination with the idea of life unconstrained by our physicality. It's a popular trope in science fiction. In C.S. Lewis's novel That Hideous Strength, a secretive scientific lab is attempting to establish a form of human existence that is not dependent on our bodies. It's presented as a great leap forward. Our bodies as nothing but an unfortunate constraint that needs to be escaped. As one of the characters puts it, quote, In us, organic life has produced mind. It has done its work. After that, we want no more of it. We do not want the world any longer furred over with organic life, like what you call the blue mould, all sprouting and budding and breeding and decaying. We must get rid of it, by little and little, of course. Slowly we learn how. Learn to make our brains live with less and less body. End quote. Needless to say, in the novel it is this pursuit that leads to all kinds of evil. And in any case, most of us wouldn't put it in such a mad scientist sort of way. But we can nevertheless come to resent the hindrances our body brings. And it's easy for us to see the ways in which our body is a limitation rather than an opportunity. In the novel and subsequent movie Ready Player One, humanity in the near future does most of its living in a virtual reality world called The Oasis where we can choose our own appearance. It is not hard to see the appeal. Quote, In the Oasis, the fat could become thin, the ugly could become beautiful, and the shy, extroverted, or vice versa. You could change your name, age, sex, race, height, weight, voice, hair colour, and bone structure. Or you could cease being human altogether and become an elf, ogre, alien, or any other creature from literature, movies, or mythology end quote. We're not ditching the body altogether, but we're able to make it take whatever form we could ever want. We exchange what we were born with for something more idealized, something that really feels exactly as we would want ourselves to be. In one case, the body is escaped, in the other, exchanged. But in Christianity, neither of those is what we need. The body is intrinsically good, not bad. So it doesn't need to be abandoned or changed into some completely different form. In the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.23, it needs to be redeemed, quote, We wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, end quote. It is a gift. In a sense, right now, a broken gift, in some ways, as we'll come to see. But a gift, nonetheless. Handmade. Only one of the presents I got for Christmas yesterday is truly unique. It's not a slight on any of the other gifts, but this one has a property that sets it apart. It was handmade. A friend made me a beautiful, framed, artistic rendering of a favourite Bible verse. To my knowledge, it was the only gift I received this year that was not mass-produced. That's not to say it's intrinsically more valuable than the other gifts, but it does make it unusually meaningful. The Bible shows that our bodies have been very carefully made by God. King David put it famously in the following prayer to God in Psalm 139 For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God's craftsmanship is not just restricted to David's outside, but includes his inward parts, all that he is, both the inner and outer aspects of his being. David speaks of being made with great care and attention. He has been individually handcrafted. That is not to say his body is perfect, as we'll see later, our body is actually broken, it's not entirely as it was meant to be, and we have all sorts of issues with it. But David can say, even of his imperfect and fallen body, that it has been fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully made. Just think about that language. I think of my friend making that Christmas gift for me. I imagine her lips pursed as she drew the words of the passage and then coloured and illustrated them. David says he has been made fearfully. Were we to know the full extent of the intricacy of God's workmanship, we'd rightly be in awe. We approach what this means when we see new parents hold their baby for the first time. It looks like it's happening in slow motion as they very carefully pick up and then take care to support the baby in their arms. There's a sense of appropriate fearfulness. They're aware of the sheer preciousness of the little bundle in their arms. Well, David would say they don't know the half of it. A baby is far more precious and awe-inspiring than we realise. It's not just the delicate body of a baby. Even when we've long outgrown our new baby cuteness, when we're long past our physical best and when our body shows all the frailties and limitations of advancing age, whatever stage we're at, we have been fearfully and wonderfully made we could not begin to measure the value of our body, however it looks and however we feel about it. Individually made There seems to be a trend for artisanal products, coffee shops, bakeries and the like. When I first noticed this, I didn't know what artisanal meant, other than assuming it meant, in the case of the bakery, misshapen and expensive. But I eventually realised it meant traditional and non-mechanically made. A person made it, not a machine. It may have some imperfections, but even those are proof of authenticity. Similarly, we human beings are not the product of a factory or the process of copy and paste. Our distinctive physical individuality is intended. We have been made by the ultimate artisan. Our God has produced billions of human bodies, but we're not mass produced. We've each been handcrafted with infinite care. David says we've been knitted together in our mother's womb. Now, I've never knitted a stitch of anything in my life, but I've watched others and it's wonderfully hands-on, each and every stitch individually knit by hand. Purposefully made. Being handcrafted means none of us has come about by accident. Our body is not random or arbitrary. I know people who were not planned by their parents. A sensitive issue, indeed. They were an accident, a surprise. And those among them who are aware of their origins can struggle with long-term relational insecurity. But when it comes to God, no one is unplanned. Every one of us is the product of God's deliberate choice. However many people there turn out to be in the whole of human history, not one of them will have been an accident. The Bible doesn't just affirm that we're all, in some way, the result of God's work, that we've come about because of him. It says much more than that. We're not just the outcome of God's activity, we're the product of God's intention. Think about it this way. Imagine I'm preparing a meal for a group of friends. I've decided somewhat ambitiously to cook a meal with several complicated dishes. I'm attending to one of these, getting a sauce just right, when I detect the faint smell of smoke. I realise that the meat in the oven is burning. Edible, but burnt. I serve it up anyway. The meal is not going to kill anyone. And parts of it may even be nice, but no one's going to be asking for the recipe. Or imagine, and this is less likely, I pull off the entire meal with aplomb. Each component turns out the way I want it. It is a success. It may not be perfect in every respect, but nevertheless, this is what I wanted my guests to enjoy. In both cases, I have produced the meal. In both cases, it is the fruit of my labour and work. But only in the second case is the resulting meal what I intended. It's a bit like that with our bodies. It's not that God made them but didn't particularly care how they turned out. He purposed them. They are what he intended them to be. We can affirm, as David does, even of these imperfect bodies, that God made them and that he meant to. Personally made. All of this means that you have the body God meant for you to have. Even when not everything about it is wonderful, it may have any number of problems. It may be a mix of your parents that you didn't want, your dad's eyes and your mother's nose, perhaps, rather than the other way round. But it does mean that God knew what he was doing when he made your body. We can often feel about our body the way we feel when we pick up a hand of cards at the start of a game. Why did I have to be dealt this? But in the case of our body, it wasn't random shuffling of the deck or luck of the draw. The intentionality of our bodies obviously runs counter to how many people think in the Western world today. One article I recently read made the following comment, quote, Most of us have the bodies we occupy because of luck of the draw, end quote. Tellingly, this was simply stated as self-evident fact rather than as an argument. It is easy to just assume our physical origins have no plan or purpose behind them. If our body is not accidental, it must also therefore not be incidental. If it were merely the product of accidental processes, we could justifiably write it off as having no theological significance. Our body would tell us nothing substantial about who we are. Our sense of self would be found entirely elsewhere with no necessary reference to our body. But if we have been created, then our body is not some arbitrary lump of matter. It means something. It is not peripheral to our understanding of who we are. For all the difficulties you may have with it, it is the body God wanted you to have. It is a gift. If this is so, it has some crucial implications for how we're to think about our body. Being grateful for our body. Our first response to our body should be to give God thanks for it. I'm conscious the words I'm saying are very hard for some to hear. They're hard to say. As with so many, my body has been the cause of some very deep pain for me. I know people whose body has even made them think seriously about taking their own life. Our body can lead to horrific suffering, both physical and psychological. The Bible does not deny this, and in fact is able to uniquely account for it, as we shall see in due course. Accepting our body as having been fearfully and wonderfully made does not mean that we have to pretend everything about it is good. But however difficult we may find it, the bodily life we have remains a gift from God, one for which we need to be thankful. It is a means he has given for you to exist in this world. In the Bible, thankfulness to God is central to our human life, which we see reflected in how Paul describes humanity's turning away from God in Romans 1.21. They did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. End quote. Ingratitude is actually part of the foundation of all sin. Failing to honour God, removing him from his throne and rightful place in our lives, happens alongside and because of our lack of giving thanks to him. Not to give thanks is to forget the goodness of God. It is to neglect the truth that he is, at heart, a God overflowing in kindness and generosity. Every good gift comes from him and that we are fundamentally recipients of his kindness, even with all the complications of life. That Paul couples honouring God with being thankful towards him shows us that unless we see God as fundamentally good, we will find little reason to follow and worship him. Thanksgiving is that foundational. If thanksgiving is foundational to our Christian life, it should be foundational to how we view our body. We are creatures made by a good and gracious creator. If even fallen and imperfect bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made, then we can and should thank our maker for them. It is better to be alive in these bodies than not to be alive at all, even when that life is experienced with great pain. For those of us who are deeply unhappy with our body, and even resentful of it, the path to a healthy response needs to begin with thanking God. Hard though it may be for us to understand, God meant for us to have our particular body. Your body is a gift. Being physically present We also need to realise that being embodied means that we are designed to relate to one another physically. Ours is the generation perhaps most in danger of forgetting this. We are able to relate to one another in non-physical ways. In the last 24 hours I've had online face-to-face conference calls with people from three other countries. Some of the colleagues I work most closely with live on other continents. Two of my best friends live several time zones away. That we can maintain, let alone enjoy such relationships and friendships shows how much we take today's technology for granted. When some missionary friends of mine had a baby in Thailand, their parents back in the UK could see pictures of their new grandchild within minutes. An earlier generation of missionaries who could only send pictures via unreliable and slow postal services, would be staggered by how much we can connect. Those living in another country far from you now don't feel much further away than if they simply lived in another town. We have resources and opportunities that are staggering when we stop and think about them. In some hugely significant ways, technology has triumphed over geography. But not completely. Alongside these unprecedented opportunities come very real dangers. Social media means we can be in contact with a huge number of people spread over a potentially huge geographical area. We can message one another and see each other very easily. It can feel like life is hugely relational. All that contact with all those people all the time. But in reality, it is a very incomplete way to relate to others. It gives an illusion of being highly connected, but is in fact an insufficient means for cultivating healthy relationships. There is no substitute for physical presence. Hearing people's voices on a call can be wonderful. Seeing their faces on a screen even more so. But presence is uniquely meaningful. Scripture shows us the importance of physical presence in numerous ways. Paul reflects on the time he spent with the Christians in Thessalonica. Quote, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. End quote. Christian ministry for Paul was much more than merely imparting gospel information. He and his colleagues shared their lives with the Thessalonians. His ministry required presence. This is made very plain from the way he continues quote, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavoured the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. End quote. Leaving them was a tearing. Separation was painful. Paul longed for a reunion. Presence with them mattered. Or consider what John says in his second letter quote, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. End quote. John's letter is short not because he's lacking things to say to his friends, but because the medium of a letter is ultimately inadequate. I would rather not use paper and ink. He might say today, I'd rather not have screen time or online chat. What he wants is to be physically present. That is what will make his joy complete. It's not that there's no joy to be had in online, virtual or distant relationships, but the joy we can get from them is limited. We need more. There's a lovely example in Acts 28 of just what physical presence can mean. Paul is in the final stages of his long, arduous journey to Rome. And so we came to Rome, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. When the Christians in Rome hear that Paul is finally almost there, they travel out to meet him and accompany him on the final leg of his journey. That might not immediately mean much to us, but bear in mind that the Forum of Appius and Three Taverns are some 30 to 40 miles or so from Rome. Travelling that distance without cars was no small gesture. As far as we know, they had no urgent business to conduct with Paul. It wasn't a matter of completing some shared task. They just wanted to be with him. They wanted Paul to have their company when he finally arrived at Rome. They wanted to be present. And what an impact their desire had on Paul. It had been a long and arduous journey to this point. Yet seeing these believers had come all that way just to be with him made a big difference. He thanked God. It gave him courage. Just their presence spoke of a solidarity that strengthened Paul and gave him a much-needed boost. Presence really does matter. Sometimes we approach relationships far too functionally. Sometimes we keep ourselves from others because we're not sure we'll be much use, especially when it comes to being with those in some kind of need. Maybe we've never been particularly good with words and feel sure we wouldn't know what to say, or we're not good with making meals or doing practical jobs. But passages like this remind us of the good that can be done through sheer physical presence. It probably wouldn't occur to many of us that we could ever be a spiritual encouragement to someone of the stature of the Apostle Paul. What could we say that he didn't already know? But these ordinary believers were a genuine help to him, just by making the effort to accompany him for the final day or so of his travel. A friend of mine pastoring a very difficult congregation once pointed out a member quietly sitting in the front pew. He has the spiritual gift of turning up. This man was evidently very faithful in his attendance in a church that was hugely volatile. Just seeing him encouraged his pastor. Nothing else can do what physical presence does. Other ways of relating to one another can wonderfully enhance our physical friendships, but they can never actually replace them. Physical presence matters because we're physical people. Being careful online. Online ways of relating help us overcome some of the limits of our body. We can be in more than one place at once. We can limit what people see of us. We can select the sort of image of ourselves we think best expresses who we want to be. We can log off when we've had enough. But the limits of our physical body are good for us. We're not meant to be everywhere at once. We're not meant to be free from the constraints of being part of a physical community. Being present is a vital part of what it means to be human. The corollary is also true. If physical presence is a way of honouring our humanity, it's also sadly true that we can all too easily dehumanise those we are not physically around. Something about that form of relating makes it easy to treat people very differently from how we would if we were sitting across from them. This is especially true of our online interactions. When we only experience people as avatars with opinions that rub us the wrong way, we can forget that behind the words is real flesh and blood. They become little more than a position to oppose, so we can find ourselves saying things we would never say if we were sitting across a table from them. Why? Because we're not with them. We forget their people, not just positions we might disagree with. Our priority is how getting these things said will make us feel, rather than how hearing them might make them feel. Even without realizing it, we can be demeaning and extraordinarily hurtful. A couple of years ago, the writer and professor, Karen Swallow Pryor, was hit by a bus and very nearly killed. Her recovery was slow and arduous but she shared sometime later that some subsequent attacks she endured online had been more painful than the physical ordeal she had been through. Our words are powerful. The Apostle James likens them to the spark that can ignite an enormous forest fire and to the deadly poison of an assassin. How much more is this the case when someone is not physically before us? When we're actually with people, even people we don't know well, We naturally and quickly develop the ability to empathise with them. We can see their facial expressions and pick up on their body language. We recognise their sensitivity to things we might be saying. We're aware of what kind of impact our speech is having. If we say something that turns out to be hurtful, we're more likely to realise that and respond accordingly. But when people are hidden behind a screen, all that really seems to matter is making sure we're right and they're wrong. So we can be dismissive of them or mock what they say, or twist their comments into something we know they wouldn't have meant. We just want to win. They're no longer humans but targets to be bullseyed, and all the while, poison is being disseminated and whole forests are ablaze. The response is to recognise this, and to make every effort never to say something to someone online that we would never say in person. We must treat each word we type as if it was being offered to someone sitting across the table from us. Presence matters. In its absence, we need to be all the more careful not to dehumanise. Being aware of appropriate touch. A recent article highlighted a growing trend in a number of urban areas. Professional cuddling services. Paid cuddlers are available for hire by those who feel as though they don't experience adequate physical contact. Some are single, others are happily married, but all feel a sense of being touch-deprived, to use the phrase of a researcher quoted in the article. I've heard it described elsewhere as skin hunger. Now, some of us might be inclined to roll our eyes, but the fact that such businesses are cropping up is quite significant. There are those in our churches and communities who only very rarely experience healthy touch. Pastor Zach Eswine admits how he, quote, had not imagined how little a widow experiences touch as it is meant to be. Family members live at a distance and visit sporadically. Beyond the pokes of medical people, the elderly often enter a famine of touch as if dwelling in the desert years of their lives, end quote. It's not just the elderly, of course. Professional cuddling agencies report having a wide range of clients. We increasingly find ourselves in a culture that doesn't know how to do physical contact. The slogan of one of these agencies seems to have put its finger on the issue, so to speak quote, We're sex obsessed, but touch deprived. End quote. There's much to this. In Western culture, we have collapsed sex and intimacy together to the extent that it's hard for people to conceive of intimacy that is not sexual at its core. So more and more we associate touch with being sensual rather than familial. Churches should provide a remedy by being places where healthy and appropriate touch is encouraged. Paul tells Timothy to treat older men as fathers and older women as mothers. Churches are meant to be families, so it's entirely appropriate that I greet a church member of an older generation in the way I would greet my own parents. All of us are to greet one another with a holy kiss, Paul says on more than one occasion. That will not be the natural form of greeting for every culture in every time, but the principle is clear. We are to greet each other in a physical way that's familial. For most of us in the West, that will involve at least a handshake or perhaps a hug. In some cases, when greeting our spiritual mothers, for example, it might mean a kiss on the cheek. But whatever it is, we must give thought to the appropriate place of touch in our church life. Boundaries must exist, of course. Not all expressions of physical affection are equal. Paul seems to anticipate that in his language of a holy kiss. Zach Eswine contrasts two kinds of physical touch in the New Testament. Quote, The first is Judas's kiss of Jesus' cheek. This kind of kiss misuses physical touch in order to consume or preserve its own selfish wants, lusts, desires or agendas. Luke twenty-two forty-seven to 48 in contrast, the holy kiss envisions a way for Christian community to recover in Jesus how human beings were originally meant to touch each other. Physical touch is meant as a holy act. Few of us know in any experiential way what it means to touch or be touched in a sacred way. Profane touch has mentored and broken most of us. End quote. Instead of profane touch, we're to learn to cultivate in our churches gospel touch. Quote, Gospel touch, then, is meant to resemble the touch normatively appropriate between family members. This is your guide. Therefore, abusive, neglectful, presumptuous, or sensual touch has no place in the tender touch of gospel life and ministry. End quote. And what is true of gospel touch should be true of all touch. The existence of cuddling agencies alerts us to a real issue for many people today even if these agencies are unlikely to be a plausible solution to the problem. It's hard to imagine that turning touch into a commercial commodity is likely to meet people's genuine needs for meaningful and familial physical contact. The real answer comes when we return to Scripture and recover a healthy biblical view of what it means to have been fearfully and wonderfully made as physical creatures. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When Jesus stepped into this world as a real, physical human, he reminded us that there is nothing incidental about our physicality. Our bodily life is God's gift to us. Chapter 2. Man looks on the outward appearance, the body and our identity. Some time ago, my friend Andrew Wilson was taking his kids to the swimming pool on vacation and noticed he was one of only a minority of men at the pool who didn't have a tattoo. Surrounded by inked flesh and having little else to do, he began to note the various species of tattoo. Most were pictures, words or names. The pictures tended to be Eastern-type images of fire and fury, perhaps an attempt to, quote, project an identity of a dark side and an understated threat, end quote. Many men had tattoos of the names and birthdays of their children. Others had short phrases. Some were in English conveying some motto or philosophy of life. More were in cooler looking foreign scripts, all of them in one way or another expressed identity. When we ink something into our flesh, we make a statement about how we want to be seen. Some of the swimming pool men wanted to be seen as a good father, others as deep or exotic or spiritual. Some wanted to express their loyalty to a particular flag, team or philosophy. Tattoos are statements. They are physical, Painted expressions of how people see themselves, of who they are. What we hope our body says about us to the outside world is one thing. What it might say to us about who we are is quite another matter. For some people today, the real me is my soul or spirit. The body is simply the lump of matter I'm connected to, the outer casing for who I really am. It is the blank canvas on which I can paint my identity once I have discovered it. It is not, in and of itself, part of that identity, or a clue to it. It need not determine or constrain who I am. It's the soul that matters. That's where you find the real me. This thinking tends to prioritise the soul over the body. It sees the body as malleable. I can shape it and mould it. I can paint it and adorn it. But what is underneath is much deeper and more immutable. For others, the body is far more significant. Much of our identity is based on what our body looks like and the extent to which it meets the cultural expectations of what a body should look like. Some today might even wonder if there is such a thing as a soul at all. Only physical things are real. Most people may be somewhere in between, or unsure. We might sense that our body means something, but not be sure what that something is. Or we might believe that there is much more to us than, say, how we look. But again, we might not be completely sure what that much more consists of. Our language can reflect some of the confusion. When people let us in on what's really going on in their life, we talk about how they bared their soul. Or when there has been a terrible tragedy, we talk about the number of souls that have been lost. Consider how odd it would sound to talk about the number of bodies lost in some disaster. And when it comes to spirituality, we often think about our inner life rather than something physical. The Bible gives us unique insight. To those who tend to see themselves, the real me, as the person they feel or believe themselves to be deep down inside, the Bible shows that their body is not incidental to who they are. And to those who have a ton of their identity invested in their body, the Bible shows that there is more to them than how they physically appear to others. Your body is not nothing, nor is it everything. Is your body you? Yes. It's intrinsic to who you are, but it is also not the totality of who you are. Is my body me? In the Bible, our body is not an accessory to who we are. It is part of who we are. We can't properly understand who we are apart from our body. Your body is not other than you. It is not just a receptacle for you. It is you. In the Bible, it's not just that you have a body. You are a body. Consider the creation of Adam, the first man, described in Genesis 2, 5-7. Quote, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. End quote. Notice how Adam was made. It was the opposite of how many people today view themselves. God didn't first make a soul called Adam and then look around for something physical to put that soul into, as though the soul was the real Adam and his body was the equivalent of a Tupperware container to store it in. No, God actually started with matter. He formed a body from the ground, which was then brought to life. As one writer put it, in the Old Testament, someone, quote, is an animated body, not an incarnated soul, end quote. Your body is not fundamentally a soul that's been shoved into the nearest lump of flesh, as if any old body would do. Carl Truman sums it up this way, quote, There is no I behind or before the body. There is no us that exists logically, let alone chronologically, independently of our flesh, and that is then randomly assigned to the bodies we have. Our bodies are an integral part of who we are, and I do not occupy my body as I might occupy a house or a spacesuit or a deck chair at the beach. On the contrary, it is an integral part of me, inseparable from who I am. End quote. Your body is intrinsic to who you are. Where we use the word soul to mean our inner or spiritual life in contrast to the physical body, the Bible typically means something much more all-encompassing. In both Old and New Testaments, the main words we tend to translate as soul mean the whole person, not just the non-physical part of us. It incorporates the body, along with everything that makes us who we are. So when we read the word soul in the Bible, the meaning might be different from how we use the word. Consider the following example from 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Quote, Though you have not seen Jesus Christ, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. End quote. Many of us reading salvation of your souls would naturally take it to mean the salvation of the inner, real us in contrast to the body. But Peter is actually talking not just about a part of us, but of the whole self, including the body. After all, he has just grounded our entire hope as Christians on the physical resurrection of Jesus. The hope is all-encompassing. The whole of who we are, mind, body, spirit, the whole package is saved in Christ. It is the salvation of our souls, not in contrast to our bodies, but very much including them. What British theologian Paul LaGoda concludes about Paul's use of the word soul applies equally well to its use in the rest of the Bible. Quote, when looking at Paul we cannot and should not assume that when he uses the word soul he means something that is fundamentally different from or opposed to the body. It is not at all opposed to the body but instead Paul incorporates the body into his understanding of what makes us really us. In other words, we cannot be truly who we are Apart from our bodies. End quote. Both the main Old Testament and New Testament words for soul speak of someone's entire life, the whole person, who someone really is, which very much includes the body. That is not to say there is no distinction between the inner and outer aspects of our lives. There are times when the word soul is used in a narrower sense, in distinction from the body. Consider these words of Jesus from Matthew 10 28. Quote, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. End quote. The distinction here seems to be temporal. The body can be killed in this life, but death is not the end of the person in totality. There is an aspect of them that continues to exist even after they have physically died. There is both warning and comfort in this. The warning is that the eternal punishment of both body and soul by God is to be feared far more than any harm that can be done to us physically in this life. The comfort is that for followers of Jesus, facing even death, nothing can ultimately harm their soul. Physical death is not the worst thing that can happen to us. So soul and body can be used distinctly in the Bible but must not be viewed as if they are in opposition. Our body is not separable from who we are. We see this elsewhere in the Bible. Take these words of Paul to the Corinthians, for example. Quote, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. End quote. These are staggering words, and we'll come back to some of them later in this book. Notice for now how this passage reinforces the importance of the body. Paul uses you and your body interchangeably here. Look carefully at how he makes his point. Quote, Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. End quote. Your body is another way of talking about the whole of who you are. It is not merely some matter you happen to be responsible for. One group of scholars puts it this way quote, Your body is an essential part of you, not a vehicle driven by the real you, your mind, nor a mere costume you must don. End quote. Paul might well refer to the body as a tent in 2 Corinthians 5, but even here the focus is on its temporality and fragility not on its being something merely external. This is hugely important. If the body is merely a vehicle or a costume for the real you, then it's the equivalent of property. But we know this can't really be the case. However much we might privilege the mind or soul over the body as the real us, we know deep down that the body is an essential part of who we truly are. When people hurt your body, you know that they have not just damaged some of your property, they have violated you. What you do to someone's body, you do to a person. One book puts it more strongly with a deeply unpleasant but important scenario. If someone is raped while in a coma, and that person, quote, never finds out and sustains no lasting injuries, end quote, it would still be wicked. A person is still violated by virtue of the fact that his or her body has been violated. What you do to a body, you do to a person. We cannot escape our embodiedness. Alistair Roberts sums it up neatly. Quote, The body isn't just something that clothes the self, but is itself the self. End quote. The body is not everything. Your body is you. It is not nothing. It's not even just something. But neither is it everything. It is not the totality of who you are. In the account of creation, we see that Adam is not just a body. God made him but then needed to breathe his own life-giving breath into the matter he had formed for Adam to come alive. On its own, unanimated by God, the body cannot be a living creature. There is no life apart from God's breath. A body without God's life is only a corpse. It's worth pausing here. Dust was formed into a body and living breath given into it. Our death is this exact process in reverse. At some point we breathe our last breath. What was breathed into us will one day be breathed out of us, and our body will return to the dust from which humanity was first created. Our humanity is undone. How our life ends reflects how it began. So your body is not the sum total of who you are. Bodies may be essential, but on their own they're not sufficient. God made them, but we also see that God looks beyond them. We see this most clearly in the selection of David as king over Israel in the Old Testament. The first king, Saul, had been rejected by God as king because of his disobedience to God's word. It was time for a new king. Saul had effectively been the people's choice, the kind of king they wanted. Now it was time for God's choice, the kind of king that reflected his plans and ways. So God directed the prophet Samuel to the household of Jesse. The new king would be one of Jesse's sons. Samuel was to go there and see which of these sons God had selected. Each in turn would be presented to Samuel so that God's choice could be revealed. It is a classic, celebrated account, as the unexpected youngest son David is chosen to be king. But it begs an obvious question. Why did God not just simply announce to Samuel at the beginning who the new king would be? Back when Saul was chosen, the process had been much more straightforward. God had told Samuel that a man would come to him who would be his choice as king. So when Saul then came to Samuel, God told Samuel that Saul was the man he had just said would come. So why didn't God do likewise later and just tell Samuel, I've chosen David, son of Jesse, to be king over my people? Why did Samuel need to go through all the hassle and danger of a journey to Bethlehem? And when there, why did he need to have each of Jesse's many sons presented to him rather than just David? The answer is that this episode is not primarily about the next king, but about God. God looks at people very differently from how we do. When Samuel met the first of Jesse's sons, Eliab, it seemed as though this was the obvious choice as king. He had the right look and stature. It was as if it had come straight from central casting. He looked the part. And that's the point. God said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16:7, "Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees: man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart." God tells Samuel something significant here about humanity. We see one another in a certain way. We look at outward appearance. Not just that we notice one another's outward appearance, which is natural and understandable, but that we assess one another by outward appearance. It may be the most immediate aspect of someone, but we tend to treat it as the most significant aspect. We size people up. We assess how they look and make our determination about them primarily on that basis. We know there's more to people than how they look, but we nevertheless resort to making appearance what shapes our estimation of them. Samuel is a case in point. One look at Eliab and it seemed obvious. We're told exactly what Samuel thought. Surely this is God's anointed man. We would have done the same thing. But God is different. His way of looking is radically different from ours. Where we tend to begin and end with outward appearance, God goes much further beyond. He sees into what is inward and much less prominent. He looks on the heart. He sees not just how we appear but who we truly are, outside and in. God's perspective is reinforced by the choice he eventually makes from Jesse's household. Just as it at first seemed completely obvious whom God would choose, dashing, tall, Eliab, so too it looked equally obvious whom God was not going to choose. So obvious, in fact, that Jesse hadn't even bothered to send for David, instead leaving him out in the fields looking after the sheep. Given the strapping alternatives, there's no way David was even under consideration. Best to leave him out of the picture. Yet he was the man God chose. We're told a little about David's appearance, ruddy, with beautiful eyes, and handsome. Not exactly horrible to look at, granted, but also not exactly the kind of rugged person you'd cast as king either. David might not have been what we'd think of as the right image of a king, but he was the right person. Jesse's sons were paraded before Samuel and before us for this very reason. We need to see how our usual way of seeing, though natural and understandable to some extent, Is not sufficient. We might tend to start with outward appearance but we mustn't stop there. Your physical appearance before the world around you with its bodily particularities is not what ultimately sums you up. You are more than your externals. You are more than your body. We all need to hear this. Whether or not we and others are pleased with our outward bodily appearance, there are a host of reasons we might not like the body we have. We'll look at why that is and some of what lies behind that later in this book. But for now, we need to know that in God's estimation, we are much more than our appearance. Your body in all its glory and limitations is you. But it is not the totality of you. Realizing this will help you have a healthy view of yourself. It will help you have a healthy view of others. Looking only at the physical gives us a very limited and incomplete picture of someone. The body is not nothing. If one mistake is to think about the body as if it is the sum total of who we are, another, as touched on earlier, is to think of it as if it has no bearing at all on who we are, or as though the essence of who we are is entirely independent of our body. This latter way of thinking seems to be more and more prevalent in the West today. Think about the hit movie, Avatar. On its release in 2009, it quickly became the highest-grossing movie ever made with a slew of sequels immediately announced to follow in due course. Set 150 years into the future, it is the story of humans on a distant moon, Pandora, inhabited by a race known as the Navi, tall, blue-skinned humanoids. In order to infiltrate this race, humans use specially created hybrid bodies called avatars. While there's much that can account for the record-breaking success of this movie, the innovative special effects, for example, It is surely no coincidence that it suggests a view of personhood in which one's body is entirely exchangeable. The main character, Sully, is in fact paraplegic. Yet via his avatar, he is able to enjoy the use of fully working limbs. Underlying the movie is the assumption that your body is little more than a costume. You can inhabit a completely different body, even that of a different humanoid species, without it changing who you are. Your personal identity may be expressed through your body but it's in no way dependent on it. You could just as easily be you in another body entirely. Avatar expresses what is a common way of thinking today. Increasingly, it is not the body we look to to get a sense of who we truly are. The real us is not discovered by looking at the body, but to the soul within. As one writer puts it, quote, the real me is a soul tightly and hermetically sealed within my body. End quote and it is this that accounts for, quote, what makes me uniquely me, end quote. The soul, as popularly understood, carries far more significance than the body. Theologian Tom Wright puts it this way, quote, The great controlling myth of our time has been the belief that within each one of us there is a real, inner, private self, long buried beneath layers of socialization and attempted cultural and religious control and needing to be rediscovered if we're to live authentic lives, end quote. I just saw a trailer for a movie tipped for Oscar greatness. A key moment seems to be when an older man says to the younger main character, at some point you've got to decide for yourself who you're going to be. Don't let nobody make that decision for you. Tom Wright estimates that, quote, perhaps half the novels written today, perhaps two-thirds of Hollywood movies, have this as their subtext, end quote. Needless to say, defining ourselves by an inner sense of who we are then becomes the basis for our ethical thinking. Whatever this true self wants and desires is self-justifying. We have to be authentic, and this quest legitimizes virtually any kind of behavior. The longings and yearnings we find deep within ourselves have to be granted in order for us to be true to who we are. So we see a growing priority given to the soul, the inner self. The body is merely incidental to our identity. What really counts is what we find within. It's not hard to see how this kind of thinking has had a huge influence on the Western church in general. Where earlier generations of Christians esteemed sacrifice and service of others as the highest kind of virtue, we are more likely today to hear church leaders speak of the need to be true to ourselves. In our culture, the hero today is not the person who risks his body for the sake of others but the person who lays aside anything and anyone for the sake of being authentic. We most esteem not self-sacrifice, but self-expression. It is not uncommon now to hear of even leading Christians justify abandoning biblical ethics on the basis of having to be true to who I really am. But who I really am can't be considered without reference to my body. Carl Truman puts it this way, quote, my body is perhaps the foundational piece of evidence that were I to claim that I am, for example, Attila the Hun or Nancy Pelosi, I would be talking nonsense, with my body as exhibit A in the case for the prosecution. It is not simply instrumental to my identity. My identity is inseparable from it. To downgrade it to mere incidental, or to set the real me in opposition to it, is a recipe for chaos. End quote. The corollary to Western culture's view of the body not being defining in any way is that what we do with it doesn't really affect us. If the real you is the inner self you understand yourself to be, then what your body does is not ultimately meaningful. It is just the body, not really you. Perhaps we see this thinking most clearly with how people increasingly view sex as simply a physical act with no significance beyond that. It was just physical, it didn't mean anything. We're used to hearing this sort of justification. But if we are our bodies, then what we do with them really does mean something. What our body does, we are doing. Paul shows us this in 1 Corinthians. Evidently, many in Corinth had bought into the mindset that what is done with the body is not spiritually significant. In the case of some, it led them to believe that sex was spiritually beneath them, and so Paul had to actually tell them not to abstain from sex within marriage. Others instead seem to think that if the body is not spiritually significant, then it didn't matter who they had sex with, and so they were engaging in forms of sexual sin, including having sex with prostitutes. Paul's words to them in 1 Corinthians 6.18 are very instructive. Quote, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. End quote. There is a sense in which sexual sin is unlike any other sin. It is a sin against our own body. There are many ways we abuse and degrade our bodies. But something more deep and lasting is happening when we engage in sexual sin. We are sinning against our very selves. As we've seen, Paul uses your body and you interchangeably in this part of his letter. Sex is a sin against the body because it is a sin against the whole person. And it's a sin against the whole person because God has designed sex to involve the whole person. We cannot avoid that reality. In the right context, it is a glorious truth. Sex is a way by which we give ourselves fully to someone else. It can never truly be just a physical act. As Australian theologian and pastor Michael Jensen has written, quote, saying it's only sex, is basically admitting that you are something else apart from your body and giving in to the fantasy that you can cordon off yourself from your body in some way, end quote. Paul would agree. Sex is, properly speaking, unavoidably and profoundly personal. Sexual sin is not just a misuse of your body, but a violation of your whole self. No wonder Paul tells us not just to avoid it, but to flee it. The repercussions of engaging in it are enormous. It does something deep to who we are. Different Christians may have differing views over whether tattoos are good, bad or neutral. But the fact that there has been such a dramatic increase is significant. Perhaps for many it's a sign that our flesh needs to be branded in order to show that it is truly ours. That, uninked, it is unable to tell the story of who we really are. For others it might simply be an attempt to flaunt what they believe to be their physical attraction or prowess. So tattoos can be a sign that we're thinking of our body both too little and too much. Only the Bible will help us have the right view. When it comes to our identity, our body is not everything, but neither is it nothing.
0: That was a special one-hour audio preview of what God has to say about our bodies, how the gospel is good news for our physical selves, by Sam Alberry. For more, check out the full audiobook available for purchase for 50% off directly from Crossway. To learn more, visit crossway.org/plus. That's crossway.org/plus.